to begin tonight's teaching, I give you Gary Larson's The Far Side. Take a minute and check that out. Yeah, that reaction just about sums up, it's Scott, that reaction just about sums up people's reaction to the far side in general. It's a kind of a, a subtle chuckle here and there, but some subtle comedy. Now, if you didn't laugh, make, let me make it even less funny uh, by meditating on the punchline a bit. Of course, the humor is in the sort of visually literalistic interpretation of a common idiom, you know, what's that clown think he's doing? And on top of that, it's just, I think, an amusing image. Uh, Methinks a clown ought not have control of launch procedures. And not just because of inexperience or unfamiliarity, but because a clown lacks the authority to walk into such a place and just start pushing buttons. It's funny. You guys don't like that? Fine. Um, Behavior itself is often a gesture uh, or even an assertion of authority to walk into a place like that, like you own it and start to push buttons, says to the people around you, I should be here and this is what I do. And while ours is a world, you know, of, of kind of puffing and posturing for the sake of imposed power and intimidation, people love to behave as though they have authority. There are times when a gesture of authority itself is a revelation of truth. So open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8. We use the far side to get to the Bible. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Scott. Was that you with the woo? Yeah. All right. You've done enough. Thank you. Um, And welcome to Van City Church, by the way. If you're new or perhaps a bit out of the loop, we've been working our way through one first century biography of a controversial figure known as Jesus of Nazareth. At Van City, we have a tremendously high view of the scriptures because we believe Jesus had a tremendously high view of the scriptures. And Jesus is our teacher, and we are his apprentices. We believe the goal of everyone who would apprentice or disciple Jesus is threefold. The first is to be with Jesus. The second is to become like Jesus. And then over time, we will learn to do what Jesus did. See, Jesus presented and practiced more than a set of morals or ethics, and he certainly presented more than a set of beliefs. Jesus offered an all-inclusive way of life. So we, as his apprentices, want to pour over his words and study his life and his work and his teaching in order to apprentice him well. So with that in mind, let's read Matthew chapter 8, beginning with verse 5. You guys there? You feeling all right? Thanks. Great. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I don't deserve to have you under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and turned around and said to those following him, his disciples, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God or the heavens, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yikes. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would, and his servant was healed at that moment. Now, if you think back to our discussion around the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' great manifesto for what it means to live as an apprentice of His, 
a way of living that he called the kingdom of God. We talked about the way that Jesus was developing more than simple rhetoric, meaning Jesus' sermon, his proposed way of life, it was brilliant, sure, it was provocative, awe-inspiring, but then Jesus walks down the hillside and actually lives that way. Stanley Hauerwas puts it like this, As we shall see, Jesus' life is but a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is the exemplification of his life. What he teaches is not different from what he is. Is it any wonder that the crowds are astonished at his teachings? We've also talked at length about the brilliant literary sophistication of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, the author of this, what is a first century biography of Jesus, doesn't simply kind of string together vignettes about Jesus' life. He utilizes deliberate structure and symbology and allegory, even numbers and history, to tell the story. All of that to communicate what is on the surface and between the lines that Jesus is God's promised King, the Messiah, come not only to restore Israel, but to rescue all of humanity from the clutches of the evil one. So it comes as no surprise that Jesus points out at the conclusion of his great manifesto, uh, the author rather, Matthew points out that Jesus' audience was amazed by the authority with which Jesus spoke, saying specifically this, when Jesus finished saying these things, that is the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. See, traditionally, even great rabbis presented truth that originated elsewhere. Jesus didn't simply claim to communicate the truth, he claimed to be its source. And Jesus did more than speak with authority. So Matthew, the author of this biography, follows that claim with a series of stories about miraculous things that Jesus did as a demonstration of Jesus' authority in action. So last week, if you remember, Cameron unpacked this beautiful story of Jesus cleansing a man who had been cast out of relationships with other people because of a skin disease. And this story sets the tone for the two stories that follow it. As we'll see, each of the first three healing accounts involve individuals who from the perspective of a first century Jew at least, were somehow disadvantaged. One scholar calls these three stories the outsider miracles. The first being the leper, the person with the skin disease. Tonight's account deals with a man who is a Gentile or not Jewish. And the final account of all involves a woman. All people who in first century Israel were imagined to be less than. And this is classic Jesus of Nazareth. In the demonstration of his incredible power and authority, he pursues the unexpected. Those who are put out of society, pushed to the margins, those rejected by the tribe, those taught and thought of as less than. And he favors them. He elevates them from the place of shame to the place of honor and dignity. And we, of course, do the opposite. From a very young age, we favor some and we ostracize others. And we do this subconsciously and without even trying. We award special attention to the cool, the powerful, the connected, uh, the rich, those with more followers and better wardrobes and cooler jobs. And we disregard the uncool and the weak and the social weirdos and the annoying and the poor, unless they're kids in the developing world who might look good on a social media feed. But Jesus' general disposition is in reverse. He favors the unfavorable. So immediately after Jesus touches this untouchable man and cleanses him of his shame and sickness, the following story involves an appeal for miraculous healing from someone who was also regarded as shameful in Jesus' Jewish context, and that is a non-Jewish person. 
non-Jewish people or Gentiles were also, like the leper, barred from life within the community of God's people. They couldn't enter the innermost courts of the temple where God's presence was said to be housed, and male Gentiles were considered ritually unclean, meaning you shouldn't even touch them if you want to maintain your ritual purity. Now, all that said, let's work through the text line by line and see what it has to say for us tonight. Matthew 8 verse 5 begins like this. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. So in the story, Jesus has made sort of a a home base in a town called Capernaum. He's, He's attracted quite a bit of attention on this particular trip to the hills and is thus easily found by a local army officer who had presumably heard of Jesus heard of the kinds of things that Jesus was saying and doing, and he tracks him down. There wasn't actually a full-on Roman legion stationed in Palestine at the time, but Herod Antipas, who was a ruler in Galilee, did have kind of a small force of auxiliary troops uh, in the area at his disposal, and he could tell them what to do. So a centurion was something of a commanding officer uh, with as many as 100 troops beneath him. Meaning this was, we think, someone in the community who had power and notoriety and authority, and both he and his servant are not only not Jewish, but they are the oppressors. They're Romans. The word that some of your Bibles translate as servant here could possibly be translated as son. It's actually the centurion's son. Either way, it's someone very close to this officer. Even servants were kind of regarded like family. And we don't know why the servant or the son is paralyzed and suffering. It could have been from something like uh, our polio or perhaps a stroke. In either event, we think that there was no prospect for medical healing. So the centurion comes to Jesus, this guy with all the buzz around him who's been doing incredible stuff, and he addresses him right out of the gate with this Greek word, kurios. And this is fascinating because the word kurios can be translated master or like it is in a lot of your Bible as uh, uh, in a lot of your Bibles as Lord, and so here is this non-Jewish Roman centurion officer, a hundred troops beneath him, coming to a Jewish peasant rabbi who would be below him in every way conceivable, and not only calling him master, but seemingly implying that he wants his help. And it's not just that this man is a Gentile, but he actually belongs to a military as well. Now, just a couple of chapters prior, Jesus taught his disciples to reject violence and to love their enemies. Now, however you feel about this now, there's no debate whatsoever about the fact that for hundreds of years, the early church understood the teachings of Jesus to logically forbid any disciple from participating in any military. The thinking has been, of course, that if your allegiance is to one master and if you must love your enemies and turn the other cheek, how could one possibly allow a government master to command them to kill their enemies in the name of the state. And of course, one popular question some folks raise in the conversation around Christian nonviolence is, why did Jesus not command the centurion to leave the army? And the answer is actually really simple. This interaction is, is in no way meant to sort of catalog a long list of every ethical expectation for this possible convert. For one, we know that uh, Roman soldiers were active pagans. They would sacrifice daily to many gods, and yet Jesus says nothing to this officer about paganism, for example. The interaction actually has to do with, at least in Matthew's purposes, with an individual who seems to be sick and in want of healing. Now, why does all that matter? Because... All that to say, here is an individual that seems to be, in more ways than one, not a likely candidate to receive a miracle from Jesus. That's the point. 
He's a Gentile, he's a Roman, he's a military officer, and he comes before a nonviolent Jewish peasant rabbi. And notice, the centurion doesn't actually ask anything in the beginning. He simply walks up to him, calls him master, and describes a problem. So how does Jesus respond? Verse 7, Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? Now, uh, commentators generally agree that the best way of understanding Jesus' reply is by reading it this way. You want me to come heal him? (laughs) I was really excited about reading it that way. And here's why. Jesus is acknowledging the absurdity of the situation. Here is the oppressor, a Roman, speaking to the oppressed, Jesus, calling him master and seemingly inviting Jesus to his house by implication, which would have been considered not only taboo, but morally reprehensible. In fact, as con- remember, uh, male Gentiles are ritually unclean. And as controversial as Jesus' behavior is depicted all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus will only enter a Gentile building once in the whole book, and it's when he's brought into the governor's quarters on trial. So Jesus' response is a bit like, Jesus saying, man, this interaction is weird enough, but what you seem to be asking is actually shocking. And what comes next validates Jesus' surprise. Look down at verse 8. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Say the word and my servant will be healed. So now the story is getting weirder. In what way does this Roman military leader not deserve to have Jesus enter his home Clearly, this isn't a question of social status. The centurion would be miles above Jesus in that regard. Of course, you could guess that this is kind of like um, the guy is ascribing a high moral and spiritual view uh, of Jesus that would make him say something deeply reverent like that. But really, more likely, it's a different type of kindness. It's kindness, but it's something else. See, Jews uh, or Jewish ideas of ritual cleanliness don't mean much to a Gentile. This guy probably didn't really care about it in in a personal sense. But he was a guy who was living amongst Jewish people. He understands that it would be socially and morally inappropriate for Jesus to enter the home of a Gentile. So he's just being respectful. So the centurion makes room for Jewish sensibilities. He says, no, you don't have to come to my house. I realize that's a whole thing with you guys. But that doesn't seem to stop him from asking for healing uh, in, in the first place. So he asked Jesus to heal his servant nonetheless. And for a healing to be accomplished this way, you know, just say the word, you don't even have to come over. Even for Jesus, this is really atypical. Most often in the story, Jesus needs to be present, and in many cases, he actually prefers to be physically touching the afflicted person. So this great gesture of faith from the centurion is actually helpful for us on a pragmatic level as we are apprentices of Jesus. We're learning to utilize the power of the Holy Spirit, especially in healing. Typically, it seems that being present and making physical contact is preferable, so we tend to favor that approach. And by we, I mean at Van City, when we actually come at the problem of sickness and pray for healing, ask for healing, proclaim healing, we prefer to be physically present and be able to touch somebody. But is that the only way? Of course not. Um, And why? Well, the centurion actually has a theory. Look at verse 9. He says, I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. So I love the simplicity of this logic. The dude is essentially saying, look, Jesus, I get it. You have authority. I have authority. Mine is in the Roman army. Yours is somewhere else on a spiritual level. Either way, we tell people what to do, and they do it. That's part of the package. It goes on, verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And he said to those following him, which he refers to his disciples, 
Truly, I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel, in my own people, in my own tribe, with such great faith. And the word Matthew uses to describe Jesus' reaction in Greek is thalmazo. Ordinarily, this word is used to describe people reacting to Jesus. And this is the only time it's used to describe Jesus reacting to someone else. And here, he's reacting to a Gentile, Roman oppressor, military officer. So Jesus turns around to address his own followers using the Gentile officer as an example of what it means to have great faith. This would be a bit like a Jewish rabbi in France, circa 1940, being approached by a German Nazi officer who again shows great faith. And then the rabbi turns to his students and says, now here's a guy who gets it. Sure, the gesture is really nice, but they would inevitably think, look who you're talking to. How can you say that? And of course, Jesus isn't oblivious to what must be going on in his followers' heads, so he says this in verse 11, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west, meaning outside of Israel, all over the world, and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of the heavens. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this image that Jesus brings up of reclining at a table with Jewish patriarchs was a popular picture of the ultimate blessedness of God's true people. Because in first century Jewish thinking, not every Jew would get a seat at the table of God's anointed king, sure, but the banquet itself would be a thoroughly Jewish gathering. To be God's people meant, in so many words, to be Jewish. And the Gentiles would be cast out of the banquet and into the darkness. This was simply taken for granted. No one argued about it. In the midst of a seriously taboo interaction with a single phrase, Jesus gets even more controversial and changes everything. New Testament scholar in his commentary on Matthew, R.T. France, he puts it this way. Jesus' saying dramatically challenges this instinctive assumption, both by including many others from foreign parts, east and west, on the guest list, and also daring to exclude those who are assumed to have a right to be there. To add insult to injury, the fate of these sons of the kingdom or subjects of the kingdom is described in the terms traditionally used in Jewish descriptions of the fate of the ungodly. So Jesus is recognizing a commonly held assumption about what constitutes a ticket into the kingdom of God, which was here, at least in part, belonging to the people of Israel. And in recognizing this assumption, Jesus destroys it. Not only will the kingdom be populated by the unexpected, but they will enter on the basis of faith, not on the basis of ancestry. And then finally, to the centurion, Jesus declares in verse 13, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. And Jesus' words specifically in context, let it be done, they're more than just a prediction about like, hey, this might happen. It is an actual declaration or pronouncement of what is true. This is Jesus' authority over sickness and evil on beautiful display. And Jesus doesn't even ask the, about the servant. <laughs> he doesn't say, well, does he have faith also? And how did he get sick or anything like that? He just heals him on the basis of someone else's faith on their behalf. And the someone else in this case doesn't even have it together. He's a soldier, he's a pagan, and yet Jesus heals. Remember that for later. For those of us who are fans of uh, genre films, you know, there are moments when a beloved hero does something so awesome that it makes the audience want to erupt into applause. You shouldn't, by the way, this is inappropriate, ruins it for everyone else, but it makes you feel like, oh, you know, it's so cool. And this is one of those moments for Jesus. 
heal a Gentile whom I don't even know, never met, miles away? Yeah, go check on him. He's better. That is so freaking cool. At least I thought it was cool. And to others in the audience, it's outrageous. It's offensive that Jesus would do such a thing. But of course, cool and or offensive, though it may be, we need to figure out what to do with all of this. You and I tonight, if we follow Jesus, what is this story, which has so much to do with a context so beyond our own, a time and place so outside of our own, what do we do with a story like this one? What is it asking of us or communicating to us, if anything? Well, before we respond to the scriptures, more worship and the bread and the cup, I think there are a few broad things here for us. The first has to do with miraculous healing. Now, to be clear, uh, we don't have the time or space for an in-depth study on healing tonight. That We'll do that later. But we can't get through this story without noticing a couple of things. And the first is pretty basic. Jesus often heals people miraculously. That was true then, and that is true now. Um, we see this again and again throughout the Gospels. Uh, and really, frankly, I've seen it myself. A person has an injury or a sickness, a disciple of Jesus prays that they would be healed, and in a moment, that injury or sickness is no more. And of course, many of us think, well, Jesus does crazy stuff, but I can't heal a paralytic from miles away. And to that, I say, really? Look at what Jesus says in John's gospel. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Uh, how? How in the world will we do that, and why does going to the Father matter? He goes on, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you, my disciples, know Him, for He lives with you and will be in you. There you have it. Disciples of Jesus can, will, and do, frankly, carry out miraculous feats empowered by the Holy Spirit who is alive in them. That is us, you and I, who claim to follow Jesus. And it happens in all sorts of ways. There's no, like, a formula for it per se. So, you know, I've, I've put my hands on a broken leg, freshly broken leg, asked it to be healed, and then the cast, it worked. The cast came off weeks and weeks early. I have with my own eyes and in person seen ordinary, down-to-earth disciples of Jesus, not superheroes that seem so beyond us, who defy cancer or arthritis or even blindness, I've seen with my own eyes. Um, and they pray, and those things go away in an instant, in a moment. I've seen this happen, uh, in, like I said, in an instant, in person, via a single prayer, and I've seen it with long-term confirmation of results, meaning a year later, it's still the same way. I've seen this in other ways, too. I've seen it when a group of people come together, and they pray for someone else who's elsewhere in the world they don't have access to over an extended period of time, again and again for weeks, and someone gets healed. I've seen people proclaim healing, where they'll say, in the name of Jesus, sickness be gone. And I've seen people who don't know any better, don't know what to do, and they just beg and plead for healing. And it works just the same. Of course, our world is a broken world. Our say isn't the only say that counts. There are evil forces at work in the world. There's chaos, the entropy of a world that has been ravaged by sin. So I've also seen people who aren't healed. And really, all healing this side of the resurrection is temporary at best. But one dimension of this story is to instill in disciples of Jesus an empowerment, I think, that hero moment that we talked about, the incredible display of Jesus' awesomeness, we should realize that and realize, or we should read that and we should realize, oh, wait, 
Now we carry on Jesus' work in the world, the work that Jesus began. He says we're going to do things like him and better things than that. If Jesus can heal an unlikely candidate in unlikely circumstances in incredible fashion, then you and I have been commissioned by our teacher, our master, our Lord, to believe the same as possible in our own lives with our own prayers. After all, I mean, aren't we all unlikely candidates ourselves? And that brings me to my next observation from the text. This healing of an unlikely candidate for healing becomes a more profound meditation on who is in and who is out. If you think back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has just said a lot of polarizing things about the reality of insiders and outsiders when he talked about the broad road and the narrow road, and he talks about false prophets and true prophets. He talks about the wise and the foolish builders, a whole lot of dichotomy in the teaching of Jesus. And God is up to something in the world. He's establishing and building a kingdom in the here and now. And on a coming day on the horizon, his kingdom will be realized in full, and there will be those who are in and those who are out. But Jesus is now saying, who is in and who is out may surprise us. And this, is com- this should come as a beautiful reminder of Jesus' very wide mercy and compassion for some of us. And for others of us, it should come as a sobering warning, particularly people like me, I think. See, someone like me um, can think of themselves as a shoe-in for God's kingdom. And what I mean is that like, oh, I've been, you know, grown up in the church. I've been following Jesus for a very long time. Um, I, you know, do all the, the Jesus-y things that I think I should do on a regular basis, you know, with some amount of success and failure. I attend seminary. I teach the Bible for a living. You know, I'm a professional Christian and all that. Um, But in this stark portrait that Jesus is painting, it's people like me who may be surprised to discover we assumed we were in and we're actually out. On the other hand, the messed up, the spiritual zeros, the uneducated, the stumbling disciples who always assume that they're in by the skin of their teeth if they're in at all, in Jesus' portrait, many of these very people come to take the seats of honor among the great heroes of the faith. And that's the key differentiator faith. And see, in modern English, you know, faith tends to become a synonym for belief, uh, perhaps belief against the odds, like, oh, I have faith even though I don't know for sure, that kind of thing. But that's not what Jesus means by faith when he celebrates the great faith of the centurion. The kind of faith that Jesus highlights and celebrates is so much more than intellectual belief in your mind. For Jesus' faith is an integration of the heart, the mind, and the lifestyle Now, it's not perfect by any means, but a clamoring, clumsy devotion of one's whole self to the way of Jesus. That is faith, great faith at that. And because such a thing is often complicated, we may be surprised to discover that a Christian-y sounding resume or a Christian-y heritage is simply not enough to warrant a seat at the table. But the one who loves Jesus with their entire lives and all their brokenness and stumbling, sure, yes, come and have a seat of honor next to the patriarchs of the story. Um, In her short story, Revelation, Southern Gothic author Flannery O'Connor depicts this upstanding, seemingly moral, well-groomed Southern Christian woman named Mrs. Turpin. And uh, Mrs. Turpin, Turpin also happens to be a hateful racist who is disgusted by people of color, disgusted by the poor, the uneducated, the impolite, the unclean. 
And in the story, one afternoon after this horrifying confrontation with someone in a doctor's office, I believe, Mrs. Turpin begins to fear that God's favor is not over her after all, and she gets furious with God, even entertaining the thought that God might, might not favor her, and she just asks God point blank, who the heck do you think you are? And a vision opens up before her, and in the vision, she sees herself at the very back of a long procession of people in front of her. This innumerable amount of individuals are all getting into God's kingdom before she is. Uh, Flannery O'Connor writes this in the story. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were tumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash cleaned for the first time in their lives and bands of black blanks and white robes and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those, as those who, like herself, had always had a little of everything and the given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key, yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces even their virtues were being burned away. Not unlike Jesus himself, Miss O'Connor was often controversial for her depictions uh, like these, and she said of them this, all my stories are about the action of grace on a character who is not very willing to support it. But most people think of these stories as hard, hopeless, and brutal. I'm sure Jesus was used to hearing the same thing. But see, God's grace is always in the habit of bridging gaps. Why would Jesus entertain the request of someone outside of his people, his community, his worldview, his ethics, his lifestyle? Why would he even respond to them, let alone heal them? Because God's grace is in the habit of bridging gaps. Many of us don't feel like likely candidates for a touch from Jesus, so to speak. We don't have impressive spiritual resumes. We don't know the insider language, or we doubt, or we struggle, or we flail and fall. And Jesus bridges the gap between himself and those unlikely to meet him otherwise. I have been uh, for some time now struggling to sit comfortably in the light of God's love for me, and so I've begun to practice this simple exercise when I do my uh, imaginative prayer. I, I imagine myself sitting before Jesus, and then one by one in my mind, I strip away everything that I tend to think of as affording me some kind of value. So suddenly, like, I can't write, I can't arrange words the, like, the way that I like them to go together, I can't play music, or I can't tell dry jokes, or, you know, show you a slide from the far side. Um, there, are, there are no outer adornments to make me look cool, there's nothing to give me a mask of confidence, and then, when I am as ugly as I can imagine myself to be, I picture Jesus then stepping to me and embracing me. I want to be in that procession of freaks and lunatics so enamored with Jesus that I go dancing awkwardly and unseemly into the kingdom without the good sense for propriety. If you feel like an outsider, God looks on you with the loving affection of a father and then brings you in. And if tonight you are like this shivering column of pride who imagined themselves as an easy sell, but now you're thinking, oh man, was I a fool to think that I was in? Well, then good news. God loves fools, and he will set the fool in front of the procession, 
though what you believed would qualify you for such placement may be stripped away in the process. And how, you know, how can Jesus do these things? Because he has the authority to do so. Because he did the things he said, and he said the things that he did. Because Jesus can heal paralysis from miles away without missing a beat, and he opens the doors wide to his dinner party. And in that party, the shameful enjoy the seats of honor while the prideful look on from the outside. And there isn't much detail in this particular text about what it means to be on the outside in the specific sense, but it is a recurring motif in Jesus' teaching. And this much is clear, it doesn't sound great. There is a fate that awaits insiders and there is a fate respective from that one that awaits outsiders. And however we understand those two respective fates, Jesus uses terms like weeping and gnashing of teeth and darkness to describe those who are on the outside, as it were. So after months and months of wrestling with Jesus' most essential and challenging teachings, Matthew is now presenting us, the readers, with a Jesus who embodies the authority with which he teaches. And we, the readers, are left asking questions, just like we were when Jesus was teaching. Well, what are we supposed to do about this? If this is the guy, if he's the guy he claims to be, what does that mean for me? What does it mean for you and I to truly acknowledge the authority of Jesus? It means that, I think, among other things, understanding that Jesus is who he claims to be. And when we understand that Jesus is who he claims to be, we get to ask for things. Think in the story of this guy walks up to Jesus. One thing is clear. Whatever he thinks about who Jesus is and the story of God and the Hebrew scriptures and all that, he's gathered in his mind, this guy's got authority to do stuff, so I may as well ask him to do something for me. When we understand the authority of Jesus, we get to ask for things. And that ranges all the way from, if you are willing, you can make me clean, like in last week's story, all the way to, say a word and they will be healed. And I want to end uh, tonight's teaching with that sort of just hanging in the air. You, having heard of Jesus, having heard of the things that he said, and not only that, but the types of things that he did, if you were to truly give yourself over to the belief in Jesus' authority, what would you ask of him?